Welcome to SCI Care, What Really Matters. My name is Katharina Ziskart. I'm a specialist nurse to take care for people with the spine and spinal cord injuries. And I've been working for more than 20 years in hospitals and home care with people of all ages, from newborn to old age with bladder and bowel disorders. I'm now the medical advisor for Central Europe for WellSpect. And in this episode, we will discuss how to begin the therapies of intermittent catheterization and transanal irrigation for young children when the parents will be the carers, how it fits for their specific child and how we make it workable for the families. When children grow older and become teenagers still in need of these therapies, the focus shift to being more independent, maintaining personal integrity and avoiding complications. How to keep the teens motivated and adhere to the therapy. To help me explore this further, we have invited Jens Larsson and Dr. Alison Graham. Please, Alison, introduce yourself. Thank you. I'm Dr. Alison Graham. I work at the National Spinal Injury Centre here at Stoke Mandeville Hospital and I've been involved in spinal cord injury for about 30 years, initially with adults and then working with young people and with children. And as part of spinal cord injury, obviously bladder and bowel care is a huge component. If you don't get that right, it's very difficult for all other aspects of living well actually happens. Thank you, Alison. And Jens, you work as an urotherapist in Sweden, in a hospital in Sweden. Please tell us a little bit more about you. Yes, uh, thank you. I'm a urotherapist. I'm a pediatric nurse working with children for 20 years now. Um, I'm working a lot with uh, functional problems with children, so not so much with spinal cord injuries, but the, the problems are there and there are with catheters and irrigation as well. So I'm very familiar with the treatments. Um, and I'm also uh, involved in the national level in Sweden uh, and in the European level with the European Society for Pediatric Urology. Uh, and I, I sit as president of the nurses group of, of that society. So um, I'm very much looking forward to, to having discussion today in the subject. Thank you, Jens. Yes, well, the disorders of functional bowel or bladder disease and neurogenic bowel or bladder disease do not differ really much. So it's it's really interesting because all of the children become teens and are struggling with the puberty. And so it's interesting for all of us. How do you work with it? How do you manage this? Or how do you introduce the parents? to the therapy, that they stand in the therapy. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. And let me start with our first question to Alison. How come you started working in this area? You told me at first with the adults, but then you come to the children. With the way that our spinal injury unit was set up, we'd always looked after children. Uh, we had children from when tuberculosis was a big problem and paralysis. Well, tuberculosis was the main cause of paralysis back in the 
late 40s and 1950s. So we'd always had children around the unit, but as we were redeveloping towards about the year 2000, we felt that it was really important that rather than having everybody having one or two children to look after, we pulled that together and actually made a specific paediatric post and a paediatric unit. So I ended up becoming the kind of go-to person for the children. And by gathering a group of people around me of all the different disciplines, we actually used the knowledge that we had at Stoke Mandeville, but brought people in, retrained and pulled together so that we actually developed a children and young person specific unit. So although we sit within the adult centre, we have a specific centre uh, within there that we look after from children from birth all the way up to the end of the 18th year. So I got drawn into it more and more. So it became initially part of my work to becoming the main focus of my clinical work. This sounds interesting because I hadn't imagined uh, children with uh, tuberculosis, if I understand you right. And when I hear Stoke Mandeville, it's it's this and, and uh, the bladder disorders. I mean, that was back in when before we had treatment for tuberculosis. Yeah. Uh, we used to have many wards just for children. And then as treatment came along, we sort of lost a specific ward. So we had only a handful of children. But over the past sort of 20 years, I would say we've gone from being about 70% of our children having trauma and 30% non-traumatic onset to almost the opposite way around. And the importance for that is that You've got a variety of different conditions causing paralysis. So we will see children who've had leukemia, lymphoma, uh, or post-surgical, as well as trauma. And therefore, when you come to actually working out what their overall rehab needs are, it's a much more complex pattern because you've got both severity changes as well as uh, level of injury. You know, we have children who may never have been sort of toilet trained before. So it's not about learning new skills. It's about this is the first time ever that you're actually having to go through different uh, body functions. Okay, thank you. And Jens, what were your reasons to work with children with bladder disorders? And uh, what are your expectations? Yeah, uh, Well, I can start with the why. I, I mean, I've I've, uh, I've started working with pediatric gastroenterology back in 2007, and worked a lot with uh, uh, functional constipation. And after working with that a couple of years, I got the question about be becoming a urotherapist and study to that. And actually, it turned out that having a gastroenterology background with functional constipation, among others, is a very good thing to to have that knowledge when you work as a urotherapist because you treat, I would say, at least as much constipation as you treat the bladder because you can't just look at the bladder and neglect the, the, the bowel. So uh, for me, it was kind of a natural uh, way uh, of, of uh, tackling things. And I, I've, I've come to realize over the years that the knowledge of that thing is, is growing in the communities as well as, and the scientific part of it becomes more and more aware of the 
the synergy of the bowel and bladder problems. And I know that's not just in functional problems as well in neurological problems. Uh, we treat a lot of constipation and I have done that very much through the years. Uh, and and it, it's a field that it's much overseen, I think, in general public. If, if we have patients referred from outpatients clinic, they're, they're often comes for the, the complaint of urine leakage or other troubles with the bladder. But then again, we find, because we ask for the bowel problems as well, and then we find a lot of children having those. So it's a kind of a struggle to, to um, try to get feedback to uh, the doctors out in this community to look at these things as well. I think that's really, really important because I think you know, you're coming to it from a very different background from my background. I'm coming from rehabilitation rather than a urology. And I think one of the things that people really need to understand is that the bladder doesn't exist by itself and the bowel don't exist by themselves. And coming into it from rehab, we would put on to it the function of the hands. You know, if you can't actually get yourself to the toilet and, you know, get your pants on and off or whatever you may have the best bladder system or bowel system in the world but you're not going to be independent and I think the way that we're all taught which is so incredibly system specific really does patients a disservice when it comes to the practical aspects how we're going to approach this subject because it is about you know it's the bladder it's the bowel it's the fun- hand function, and it's also the psychology and family dynamics as well. And you're not going to get that in your average textbook of bladder function. <laughs> and that's what makes it, you know, it makes it really important and really interesting to work with families. But as you say, it's so it's got getting that out there that it isn't that the bladder is leaking, not just because of the bladder, but if you haven't actually worked out what the bowel is doing, you're not going to get continence both. No, no, I agree. Yeah, I see it the same way. As I work in, in home care and talk to families, I often I always ask the families um, for the bowel management, for the bladder management. What's about urinary tract infections? Is it a problem for your child or for your teenager? And so it's... As you say, Alison, you can't see the bladder as her own and the uh, bowel as his own. And you have to put both together. And this is so important that all the families understand this. And it's the therapy is not done with the uh, IC or with the uh, transanal irrigation. So you see it both together. Yeah, there have been more and more talks about calling it bowel and bladder dysfunction now than before. So it's, I think the knowledge is increasing, hopefully. <laughs> it's the right direction on things. Yes, Jens, thank you, I'm with you. And what do you think in this topic was the main challenge when it comes to teaching intermittent uh, catheterization to children? How do you start? with them? I think for us, we have different domains of rehabilitation. So when we have a child and we're looking at all the things that need to be put back on track, obviously bladder care is going to be part of the things we're going to do. And obviously you've got your history, you've got your examination, and actually finding out what's happening at the moment, both from the child, depending on how old they are, 
and if they'll even talk to you about it because then they're very embarrassed and also what the family are doing and what their expectations are. So I think once we've started with that, it is about trying to, to teach about what the bladder and the bowels do. What, what are we working with? So yes, we'll look at investigations. And the most important part of it, the whole way through, is actually getting that relationship with the family, because this is deeply personal. The child is part of that family, there may be other children. So you've got a young person who does not really want to talk to you about it, they really want it all to go away. And so I think the first bit is not about sort of diving in there with all the, this is what we're going to do. It's about establishing that we are going to make this better. It might not be perfect and we're going to have struggles along the way, but we're not going to give up. And it's about working with that family and the child and it's getting confidence that they know you're going to do something, but you're not going to embarrass them totally while you're doing it. So I think we start wide before we focus in. And also about looking realistically about what is going to be possible for this child based on their age, the level of injury and the severity of injury. And um, I think... We tended in the past to go through very much, you know, everybody's got to do intermittence and everybody's got to have this. It is now about offering a lot more options up and just sort of seeing what the child accepts, what family accepts. And it's also challenging what's, what people think is going to happen. We will see children who come to us being wet and incontinent at school or they're wearing nappies and diapers that we do totally wrong for their age. And so it's about so challenging. That might be easier, but it's not what we're prepared to keep going with. So a huge amount of it sounds like waffle, but it's about absolutely setting the stage in order to start getting someone involved with incredibly personal care. I think it's, it's interesting that you say, and I'm totally with you, you don't have to be perfect from the start and you do have to things like this and this and this. So start with one thing and look how it works for the family and um, for the parents or uh, the sister and, and brothers and then come more to rehabilitation, more in the therapy and look for the sizes and, and the whole the holistic view of all things. But start with a small piece, if I get you right. Yeah, and I think that all the different professionals come in with a different aspect. I mean, from the nursing side of things, they're very much going to be looking at continence. They're looking at uh, skin care in addition to what's going on with the bladder and bowel. I'm coming into it with that as a medic, but I'm also thinking about infection. I'm thinking about upper tract damage. We would have the occupational therapist coming in, sort of, why isn't the child using their hands to do that? What splints can we do? The physio's looking at, why can't that child get on and off the bed to do the thing? So we're all coming into it with a different picture. The mum and dad are thinking, how much time is this going to take me? And what time do I have to get up in the morning to do bladder care, bowel care, and every other thing that you want me to do? And so it is about, we're all coming into it with our own professional and sort of family sort of expectations. And it is about making sure that the family can see how that's going to fit in with their child for the here and now but also I'm very much thinking 
I've got to hand this child on to adult services with two good kidneys. And it's about not just the, the continence, but the keeping the kidneys as healthy into adulthood. Jens, what is your opinion to this question, to this topic? Yeah, I, I agree with all that you are saying. And I, I have a very large diversity on the children I, I meet. I mean, it's from the young ones with rectal and bladder malformations to, uh, to at the hospital to yeah, children with functional problems needed. Um, CIC, for instance, uh, and, and even older children with, uh, with special needs, with cerebral palsy, for example, with bladder f problems. It could be a very variety of ages. I usually see, the, first of all, the, the patients and the parents need to know why these things matters and why we want to do it in a certain way. Whatever we are talking about is it's a co quite, as you say, it's an embarrassing subject and the main, it's an area that you don't as a child or might even as a parent you want to talk about, but you need to build that confidence with the family and make them uh, comfortable in talking to you about it as well. And, and that's something I think is important. But again, I think, you know, give the the families and the, the child as much information so they that they are self uh, aware of what they need to do i think that's very critical to to uh, get these kind of treatments going and, and to have something uh, to work with the families with it's, it's important in every level yeah this isn't something that you just it's not a tablet that you give and makes everything better It is an incredibly hands-on, practical subject that you can teach, you can educate. But at the end of the day, those families go away and they're going to be doing this several times a day without the professional being in the room. And they're going to be doing like the transit you know, litigation almost every day. They take on holiday with them. So it's a huge amount about imparting the skills that we think we have over onto usually families and then the young person when it's age appropriate to do it. So I think, again, it is, it's not just about the knowledge, it's about that transfer of skills. And you can only do that people buy into why they're having to do this for the long term. And I think that's incredibly important because you don't want to lose people by thinking, well, it's easier just to do it this way. And I know that you think that bladder is really important and the kidneys are really important, but I need to do this now and I haven't got time. And I think that's what you know, about establishing that relationship about, you know, it's the whole thing about with the kidneys, with the bladder. If the bladder's not working, there's much more of a push for people to do something because nobody wants to be wet and nobody wants to have a urinary tract infection. But when you're looking at some of the things that you're trying to improve long-term function, you know, for either bladder or bowel, it's silent and you don't really feel what's going wrong on a day-to-day -day basis. It's much more difficult to motivate people to do the very best for their, their bladder and their bowels. And so it is a hugely sort of interpersonal thing. And I think that's what what has made the difference about making sort of good catheter care or good transcendental irrigation, I think is often the personal relationship that you will have with that child and young person and the family, not the you know, me giving you the diagnosis and what the urodynamics show or what the, you know, what the sort of 
the physical examination. It's about that personal relationship that you're there to help them with that child. What things do you use to hold them motivated? I think it's about remembering what you're going to do. I mean, for us, a lot of things might be like for going swimming. You know, if your bowels aren't sort of behaving, if you've got lots of episodes, you're not going to get swimming or it's going to be so embarrassing. It's about looking to sort of getting the child sitting next to somebody in class and the child next to them not saying you smell or why have you got nappies? You know, you were at big school now. And so a lot of it is about the huge things when you've got bladder and bowel problems but people who haven't got them it's just like well so what and it's about remembering that where you're going what you started off with we we look at ultrasounds look at the kidney growth but it's a bit difficult to get too excited of me telling you your kidneys have grown by a centimeter in a year but it's about the fact that you can go swimming it's the fact that maybe the sort of washing machine load has gone down It's about a combination of the kind of medical issues, but I think much more the activities of daily living. What's got better? From the functional views, if you have a functional problem, it's not that uh, dangerous for the the body or or the kidneys, but there are maybe, as in in other areas as well, a social problem. shouldn't be noticed in school or with the the peers. I I believe that an important thing for me is that you have a plan for for visits so you don't just let them go and and, uh, let them be on their own doing this and also have reassure them that if there there are any problems for these families they can always reach back and, and get help through phone or by email or or whatever channel it is. I think that's one of the things I've noticed during the years that that the family wants that. And and also the regular visits back at the clinic is is also important for them to continue with the treatment. It's about follow-up. It's about the fact that they've got someone they know that can be helping keeping the treatment going. And I think also one of the big things is about making sure that you've actually, you don't run out of equipment, you know, all the practical things to make sure that you can get the components, that you've got someone to say, this didn't work so well, what do you think? And I think the importance there is that you're not going to get that maybe through a general practice or even the hospital. You need to have a direct line to somebody. And somebody who knows who's been there has got that experience because a lot of patients and families will tell us that you go on holiday and maybe you eat differently or you drink differently and everything seems out of, uh, out of what we call out of kilter not working well how do you get that back on track and it's not something you have in a textbook it's about being able to talk to somebody with years of experience who says look don't worry this is what I want you to do just drink more or whatever you'll get back there And the things that seem very small are the huge things when it comes down to making a success or not. Well, last weekend we tried out a motivational camp for kids. It was called the Cool Kids Camp. And we do two days, nearly three days with children, with teens, with Spina Bifida and their parents. 
and it was like a, a family vacation. We had a barbecue and a campfire. We sit together. We had some lecture for the parents from an uh, advocate and a motivational lecture for the children from a, a Paralympian. And my bag and how I, I manage my transanal irrigation and what's about the food, what's about drinking. and um, I think this was really interesting because of struggling with the puberty and how is my friend dealing with it and going to a normal school and that there's nobody saying, hey, you are smelling and what's your turn to do like this? So it was really nice for the children that not an adult is saying you have to do it like this because um, another teen is saying, okay, I'm doing like this. And I think this was really good for uh, them. Yeah, It's a huge way of normalizing something that isn't within the kind of normal within the classroom of children. One of the things that we find is when we readmit children for review, we're very lucky that we have a large kitchen area that families can meet and discuss. And often if we've got a child who maybe doesn't want to do intermittent catheters by themselves. They've been used to their parent doing it. And I would think that cognitively and age-wise, they probably should be doing it by themselves. They've got the hand function to do it. I could talk to them about what they should be doing. Two minutes with a child who's younger than them, who's doing it by themselves, and they will be doing it. You know, there's that sort of peer positive pressure of, you know, that boy's younger than me and he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think there is a huge amount that families and children themselves support each other. So having that ability to talk to each other in a safe space about um, what they do. I mean, I think it's one of the things I can't think of people passing bad habits to each other. Uh, I think they do tend to pass good habits and good knowledge to each other. So whether it's done through an informal setting like camps, which is very a very nice way of doing it, or what we do it through the hospital setting with inpatients, uh, and we mix inpatients people on their first admission to people who are coming back throughout childhood. So I think there's a huge um, push from peer to peer that works far faster than whatever any professional can make them make them do it. And it's a bit like even other children within the family. You know, it's about, even if the child themselves can't do everything, it's about still expecting them in the age-appropriate aspects to be responsible verbally, so that even if they can't physically do a catheter, we would be expecting them to know that it needs to be done and not to sort of rely as they get older on caregivers. And I think that's one of the big pushes when you move from the child who's having an adult or a caregiver taking responsibility. The big journey through adolescent care is switching over to allowing that person and ensuring that person takes on responsibility themselves. And it's about they are going to be the adult, even if they're not physically independent, then we have this concept of verbal independence that you still know your care and you can instruct others. So we would expect any child and young person 
who might not physically be doing the catheters or even their anal integration. As they go through their journey with us, we expect them to know their care inside out, to know what size catheters, and to basically talk someone else through it. And that's part of the the kind of reinforcing why they're doing it, what they're doing it. And then when you do that, whether you're doing it yourself or whether you're instructing someone, you can then problem solve. You know, what? why didn't it work so well today? Did I take the right laxatives or did I miss them out? Or And it's about, it's a lot of information knowledge we're giving to people, but we've got that journey through childhood and adolescence to hand it over which happens in lots of other chronic conditions in adolescent healthcare. How do you work with the children with functional bladder diseases without motorical diseases of the, of the hand? Yeah, well, we try to rely much on the parents at the beginning. Mostly our children who have functional bladder problems comes to us earliest by age of five, six, um, if they have incontinence, for example. And... Uh, then we, we try to work with charts and we try to work with getting them to know the basic knowledge of the body and why they need to do anything just to, to yeah get them uh, motivated to continue with the treatment that has to be done. And we are not that used to, uh, to having this sort of camp. And, and I know it's now I'm fairly new at this department, but I haven't heard that they have had any sort of this... Uh, meetings we have some patients that has been admitted to a child play specialist in the hospital if they have problems on starting cic or they have a lot of fears for example and then they can meet other children in the same situation doing for example cic or transanal litigation um, but that that's through the the child play specialist uh, we're doing that and it's uh, different from families to families from patient to patients some children are more adherent to to the treatment they get the hang of it quickly and they do it quickly and on the other hand you can have some patients that needs a lot of time for accepting the treatment before they do it so it's I think, yeah, every patient is unique in that sense, that you need to adapt to the individual in the treatment. Thank you. So um, how often do you offer follow-up appointments for uh, rehabilitation or, or for patients to come into your hospital again, Alison? Most of the time we will see a child the very basic would be an inpatient once a year, if not twice a year. And while that doesn't sound a lot, that's for at least five days. And during that time, it will be a combination of the whole uh, rehabilitation team that will see the child. Initially, when the child is younger, it will be with a parent. But we try and encourage as the young person grows that they'll come in to learn much more independent skills. And so mum and dad may drop them off. And they'll spend the week with us and go home with a lot more knowledge and a lot more independence skills. So that's the sort of basic way we'll do a lot of the investigations, um, x-rays and ultrasounds. But when it comes to some of the, if someone has a specific problem related to bladder or bowel, then they'll be followed up 
sometimes by teleconsultation now rather than sort of other ways. Uh, and that will be very much dependent on what they're doing. So, so we want to change a bowel routine. It may be two weeks to say, try that and we'll contact you. They may contact in between to say this is not working and not doing that. So it's we've got a sort of a variety of different follow-ups and it's not it might not be the medics who follow them up, but it will be nursing staff that will follow up for sort of practical issues for the bladder and bowel. And for children with a functional uh, bladder disease, as I know in one of my hospitals, um, they invite the children for five days for group training and then followed up by a 30 days bladder challenge. How do you work with it, Jens? Well, we also have an inpatient program for starting, for example, CIC. Uh, treatment. It's depending on, on the patients and what, where the patients are in the treatment and, and how they are making the progress, I think. So it could be like we take them back after a week or two, or maybe we have a month after we, we, we see them again. And it's uh, and th that's a way to tailor the, the treatment and make it best for the families. And also it could be, uh, yeah. It depends on also where the patients are from. If are they from far away from the hospital, they might need some more distant consultations by phone or video. Or they are living just in town, they could uh, just stop by to, to say hi and, and tell us how it's going. So I think uh, we haven't have we haven't got any standardized protocol for that kind of it because it's so individual from family to family. But then again, is everything working fine? Then you might have them for once six months or once a year or something like that, depending on, on the situation for the families. That's interesting. It's, it's, I think it's like the same in Germany. You're in Sweden and in UK. So uh, we are all working nearly the same way and, and have the same ideas for working with children and teens and their parents. And I think we are nearly an, on the end of our discussion today. But Jens, please, what is your key message for our listeners uh, in starting therapy and in, in staying therapy with uh, transanal irrigation? Hopefully, um, if you, if you, if I have a children or child that that needs transalanal irrigation. When I started working with, with constipation back in 2007, the transalanal irrigation as a treatment for, for functional constipation wasn't really um, used. I think it's a, a bit uh, later than that the, the scientific evidence for the treatment and functional constipation as well got accepted. And uh, I mean, it's... It's, I always tell them that this, this is kind of a, a strange way of treating the bowel, but it's used all over the world and it's, it's safe. And, and I think the most important things for having success in the treatment, I think it's that the, the child and the, the family sees the benefits of the, the treatment because often my biggest 
for children with constipation, the biggest concern, I think, and that's I think that's with the spinal injuries as well, is that you don't want, for example, feces incontinence. Uh, you you want to have stay dry during the day, and that's also one of the main concerns when you have a constipated child because incontinence of feces is very common uh, among these children as well. I, I usually use uh, the lesser if they have less incontinence of feces then you have a successful treatment so it's and i think that's the main reason that people or the children or family stay on the treatment because they they notice that okay this is good for me and they they have a, a healthier life and no not so much worrying about if they're having an accident in school or or with when they are with friends and so on so it's i think it's it's hopefully the the families so on the, and the child notice the difference with the treatment and then again if you have a functional constipation it's often a problem that could be curated and, and better so if even if we start an irrigation treatment for a child that has, has constipation for a long time and, and troubling with incontinence of feces then they, they should do some kind of of tryouts with stopping the treatment uh, like once a year or once every six months or, or something like that just to see if the bowel keeps working without irrigation and, and that's that's also a, an important thing to to I think know for the families that this is something you you do during a period and I, I used to compare it with every other medicine you take for a while and then you stop it it's just for getting the bowel to to work and then you can try to stop it and, and most of the children although they have a long period of treatment they could get off the treatment as well so it's, i think it's that's one of the big difference i i believe in treatment functional problems with spinal problems yes yes you're right so this yeah one of the, the greatest differences for the functional children and the neurogenic bowel diseases or bladder diseases. So we have to stay in, in therapy with the spinal cord injury. Yeah. And Alison, with the look on IC, what is your take home message for our listeners? I think it's about having the belief that your bladder care can be better, both in the short term and the longer term, to try and reduce the complications that happen after injury for the bladder. And I think it's about not accepting the first thing if it doesn't work. It's about making sure that you keep on working with your team to get the best catheters that work for you, because not all catheters are the same. It's about uh, knowing your body and knowing what's going on. And about just having that ongoing relationship with working out at the right age, the right time, who's responsible for your own bladder care, which will ultimately be that person and just keep on going to get things better i think we've got a variety of things that we can do it's not just a catheter by itself it's about bringing different people in and it's about using all the other adjuvant treatments like you know, anti-muscarinic medications about using the different drugs about using botox appropriately and even potentially surgery uh, in addition so it's about making sure that you've got a good working relationship with the, the professionals that are looking after you. And it's about 
challenging on both sides to keep on going for a better treatment. And that will give you a better quality of life. If you've got your bladder and your bowel under better control, you know, we can't do anything at the moment realistically about getting up and walking after injury, but we can do something for your bladder and bowel. Thank you, Alison. And thank you, Jens. Those were the good words uh, to come to the end and to the finishing line. And um, it has been an excellent discussion. I've learned quite a bit today and to get a wider range in my thinking about functional bowel and bladder disease and organic bowel and bladder disease. And uh, I'm sure our listeners um, have the same idea too. Thank you. This has been SCI Care, What Really Matters. I have been your host, Katarina Ziskat. We do hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, do not hesitate to send an email to admin to iscos.org.uk. And registration is now open for the 61st ISCOS annual scientific meeting taking place in Vancouver this September. And all details are in our show notes. Do remember to subscribe with the podcast provider of your choice. You will also find us on social media. Do follow us and join in on the conversation. Thank you. Stay healthy and goodbye.